Coming up next on the booketing, Brandon and Jake aren't here. Brandon and Jake are not here. It's just Nathan, which is rather queer. Using that word in the old-fashioned way. Not to mean anything remotely gay. But to just mean that it is odd that the podcaster with the greatest bod should be podcasting all by himself. Jake and Brandon are on the metaphorical shelf. It's a Nathan single episode. Hey, everybody. That's right. The song did not lie. Jake and Brandon are not here. So there's there wasn't like a huge scheduling conflict or anything like that. But I'm having a baby within the next week or two. Little baby Theodora. The progeny of yours truly is being born into the world. And so I just want to be ahead on episodes. And the easiest way to be ahead on episodes was for me to do one by myself. So that's what I'm doing right now. I think there's going to be some quality discussion, though, or quality monologuing is a discussion. If it's, you know what, it is a discussion. It's a discussion between me and between you, the listener, and between the person who asked us the question. So this question actually came in a couple months ago, and I'm guessing whatever situation it pertained to is no longer relevant. But I thought it was a good question for our podcast to address and a good Nathan single episode maybe because it's something I can talk about even without the fellas. So let's talk about this. This question comes from one of our listeners. The question is, I am currently in my first or second semester of college and I'm taking a literature class and they want me to read a John Updike story. And the John Updike story contains some pretty sexually explicit material, as John Updike stories do. And I'm not really comfortable with it. And the question is, should I read a wicked, perverse story for my literature class? Yours truly, perplexed in Poughkeepsie. She's not really perplexed in Poughkeepsie. Oh, it's a she. Well, yeah, it is a she. I I gave it away. Anyway, I'm sure Jake and Brandon would have some very wise thoughts and insights about this question, but they're not here. And I'll tell you who is here. Me. So let's talk about discernment. Let's talk about where you draw the line in regards to, I mean, I guess this could apply to anything, what songs you listen to, what movies you watch, what news outlets you give yourself to. I don't know. This really applies to what everything, what, what kind of people you make friends with, what type of events and parties that you go to. I mean, discernment applies to everything, right? Or it should. But we are going to talk about the subject of discernment through the lens of what books should I read and what books should I not touch? Where do I draw the line? And I think this is an especially important topic for young people as they get out of the house, as they go to get educated, as they go to college, which obviously a lot of our colleges are horrible, hellish institutions bent on 
corrupting our youth. And I say that without any irony. I think that that's just true. But it is also true that under the best circumstances, college is a time when you, for lack of a better phrase, when you find yourself. It's a time when you become settled, when you become, period. Like your whole youth is this process of becoming. And somewhere in your 20s, if you're doing it right, you become. You are suddenly the person that you have been becoming. Actually, I think for a lot of people, that doesn't really happen until they're in their 30s. I wouldn't say that it happened for me until then. But you're making some very active choices, and you're being forced to make some very active choices for the first time when you get out of your house. I mean, obviously, I guess there's, there's lots of people who have different kinds of arrangements with their parents and different levels of authority that they live under through their teenage years, and some people come from single parents or uh, different situations. My parents divorced when I was out of the house, and I would say there was pretty lax oversight of my entertainment and book reading diet for the second half of my adolescent or uh, yeah, adolescent years, my, my pre out on my own time. So that's my story. But everybody has slightly different preparation in terms of how much responsibility they've had to bear for what they allow into their life in terms of content. But all of us, when we get out of the house, when we're on our own, when we're going to college, when we're in our early 20s and our late teens, we are making these decisions really for the first time. We're bearing full responsibility. I can watch anything that I want. I could spend all day looking at pornography if that's what I think that I should do. I can just turn on an HBO show with lots of nudity. Nobody's going to stop me. Nobody's going to walk into the room who I don't want there. It's my choice. The ball is in my court. And especially for kids that do come from some kind of a structured existence, Christian kids who come from a good home, or even pagan kids that come from an okay home, or you know anybody that comes from any kind of halfway decent situation. And even though my parents' marriage fell apart and they got divorced, I, I would consider it to be halfway decent. You know, half, what, what is halfway decent? Halfway decent is such a relative term. But, you know, I had some discipline. I had food on the table. I had a school that they made me go to. There's a lot of things that I had that other people didn't have. And so, again, everybody's coming from a slightly different place. But I think most of us, most of the people that are listening to this podcast probably had some kind of structure to their existence until the age of 18, 19, whatever, until they got out on their own. And then suddenly you have to make these decisions. And if you're not prepared, it can be difficult. Now, let me take a little sidebar here to say one of the things that I think is so important in teaching, in high school teaching, in youth group teaching, in preaching, in parenting, Anyone who is training the mind of a young person, I think it's really important that you teach them not just what to think, but how to think. And I don't know how you do that. I mean, it's going to be different for every kid and it's going to be different for every stage of life. And, you know, there's so much we could say. We could do a whole series of podcasts on that subject alone. But the only point I want to make here is that if your kids have always been just told what to think. You know, in our house, we don't watch this. 
we do watch this. In our house, we don't read this. We do read this. They've never been taught how to think about those things and how to make those decisions for themselves. Then that's going to be a huge problem for them when they suddenly get out on their own. They suddenly have to do it. All the sort of training that they have in, oh, well, I just don't do this sort of thing. They may well begin to question that if they don't actually have a model for why they don't do this sort of thing. And so I think it is so important from an early age to be teaching kids how to think. And of course, a large part of teaching someone how to think is teaching them what to think. A large part of any educational pursuit is brainwashing. And that's a cynical, silly Nathan kind of a way to put it. But I, I really think it is true. You repeat something enough, you model something enough, and someone just absorbs it. You know, we see the bad version of this all the time where kids come from abusive homes and they just think that whatever they came from is normal. You know, oh, yeah, of course, dad screams at mommy and throws things. That's, that's just what dads and moms do. They don't realize there's a larger world out there where that doesn't happen. And there can be very negative examples of that, but also it can be a very positive thing. Oh, in our family, you know, a good family reads the Bible. A good family, the father treats the mother with dignity. The wife is deferential to the husband, whatever it is. These are the kinds of things that actually do have to be modeled. And you do have to sort of tell people what to think. But then as you develop, as the young person develops, you begin to give them more responsibility and you begin to teach them how to think and you begin to give them the tools for evaluating things critically. And how you do that is not my problem on today's podcast. I think you you let them listen to great Christian podcasts, which are all about asking serious questions of the Western canon. That's probably one thing that you do. I mean, honestly, we do try and make this podcast about how to think more than what to think. I don't really care what you think about C.S. Lewis, for example. <laughs> I have some very strong opinions about C.S. Lewis, both good and bad, but I don't really actually care what you think about C.S. Lewis. I just want to burst you out of your bubble of feeling like you have to think a certain way about C.S. Lewis. I, I just want to give you the freedom, ultimately, to think whatever you want, whatever you think is wise about C.S. Lewis. And a lot of the shock tactics <laughs> that we might do on this podcast are actually if I may wrap myself in a noble flag here, a lot of what we do is intended for exactly that. So, all that being said, sidebar over, our mission today is to talk about, very specifically, making wise, informed decisions about the moral lines that you draw in regards to the content that you allow into your heart and into your brain. And I'm going to talk specifically to a 19, 20-year-old who really feels the weight of making these decisions for the first time and is maybe going to school and has a whole new set of influences and has people actively encouraging her to question things. And by the way, in the case that I'm thinking of, in, in, in Perplex and Poughkeepsie's case, she's not going to an evil, horrible liberal Marxist propaganda center. She's going to an okay school that I think most of us would consider to be Christian and conservative. But under the best of circumstances, college actually should be the place where they say, okay, guys, let's question some of your assumptions. Let's push back on things. Let's even, even where we 
agree with something, even where we think something is good and foundational, let's push on it a little bit so that you can come back all the stronger, so, so that you can develop the muscles and learn how to wield these thoughts for yourself. And there might be something that we really love, democracy, freedom of speech. Let's, let's push on it a little bit, though, so that you can learn why democracy is so important by actually thinking about what's good about monarchy. You know, college is the place where you do that under the best of circumstances. It's been wildly corrupted in our culture, but that is actually what you're supposed to do. That's what you do in a good educational uh, situation. And by, and by the way, I, uh, one more little caveat. I, I have absolutely no dog in the fight about homeschooling or the trivium or classical education. I just don't care about any of that stuff. Maybe I will as my child gets a little bit older. Maybe I will have some strong opinions and maybe you'll hear about them on this podcast in the years to come. But right now, I, I really don't have any opinion. My, my only opinion is that every kid is different and, and that we shouldn't be oppressive to each other. I don't like it when someone claims they've found the one and only way. And if you, unless you do that way, you are failing your child. I think that's kind of silly. But anyway, I know I'm in danger of stepping on some toes here. So let me back off. All I want to do is talk to the young person. Talk, I'm, I want to talk to perplexed and Poughkeepsie right now. And I want to give her four principles for making discerning decisions, for, for wielding her discernment. So principle number one, and the question remember is, should I read a wicked story for my class? Or, or, or where do I draw the line in, in terms of whether I read this wicked story or not? Okay, so principle number one, you have to make up your own uh, freaking mind about that. You have to make up your own mind about that, actually. I can't tell you what to do. A podcast can't tell you what to do. And this is me kind of hearkening back to what I just said about how a good authority figure in many cases tells you not what to think, but how to think. Obviously, there are things that are very, very clear in life. There are things that are just simply sinful. And there are things that are just simply good. A good pastor can say, thou shalt not steal. He doesn't need to make it any more complicated than that. He can just say, you should not steal. He doesn't have to teach you how to make up your own mind about stealing, right? But there are a lot of things in life that aren't exactly moral issues. I mean, they are, or maybe a better way of putting it is they are moral issues but they're not clear-cut moral issues. They're, they're, they're more wisdom issues, actually. The Bible says things about the way that God intended sexuality. It says things about fornication being wrong. It says things about adultery being wrong. It says things about there being wicked, sexually debauched deeds that we, we shouldn't even name among ourselves. It says whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is noble, think on these things. It gives us a series of commands. But in terms of how that applies to whether you read a John Updike story, you really have to make up your own mind about that. You really have to make that decision for yourself. I can't make that decision for you. God calls us to be faithful. He calls us to have wisdom. One of my favorite Proverbs is in the book of Proverbs, and it's the beginning of wisdom is dot, dot, dot. The fear of the Lord, yes, that's one of, that's, it says that in one of the places, but the one that I actually like is where it says, the beginning of wisdom is, get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is, get wisdom. <laughs> in other words, you are responsible 
to think about things. You are responsible to learn about things. You are responsible to grow in your ability to make these decisions. And so you can't just go to the Gospel Coalition or Warhorn Media or some approved book list by Charlotte Mason or I don't know what the modern thing is, Andrew Peterson. You know, whoever your guy is, you can't just rely on your guy. That's good to have people informing you. It's good to have your the pastor of your church primarily informing you and the godly older people and godly people that God has put in your life informing what you read and what you think about. It's good to get all the wisdom everywhere you can. But ultimately, you have to be responsible for this yourself. You have to make this decision. Nobody can make it for you. The only person that's going to stand before God and give an account for whether she read this John Updike story or not is you. And so you make the decision. You use your brain. You do it by faith. And you bear the consequences, good or bad. That's life. Life is just making decisions to the best of our ability, princess. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And some of those decisions are crap. And some of them, many of them, by God's grace, are good. But we need to be proactive in making these decisions. And we need to be responsible to make decisions. In other words, the bad thing to do is to say, oh, well, I guess I'll read it because I don't really want to think one way or another about it. Or I'm not even going to be bothered by the fact that there's anything wrong with it. I'm just going to read it. The bad thing to do is to be passive. The bad thing is to take no responsibility for the state of your soul. The bad thing is to not make an active decision about whether or not to read this morally questionable at best story for a class. The good thing is to, by faith, use your brain, use what you know about the Bible, get some counsel, and then make a decision. Even a bad decision, I think, is better than no decision. And so I'm sorry if that's a frustrating place to start, but I think a lot of young people need to hear that. You are simply responsible for your life. You are responsible morally for what content you consume and what content you choose not to consume. And no one can make those decisions for you. You must make them for yourself. And so the first piece of advice that I have is make a decision and live with it and pray to God that it would be the right one and then make it by faith with prayer and with as much biblical wisdom as you can muster. You're going to be doing this all through your adult life. You know, uh, eventually you're going to be the 60 year old. Eventually there's just not going to be anyone left <laughs> for you to look to. And you're just going to have to make these decisions. So you might as well start. You might as well start. And again, it doesn't mean despising good counsel, it doesn't mean despising good authority, but it does mean bear responsibility for yourself. So that's my first principle. My second principle is there should definitely be things that you don't read. There should be some things that you should say no to. Probably at some point in your college studies, there will be a short story that you just say, no, this is crosses the line. This is bad. This is sexually debauched. Uh, for me, Updike is actually one of them. I think John Updike is just a dirty old man. Even when he was a young man, he wrote like a dirty old man. He just always wanted to describe sexually perverse things. I mean, he just feels like such a frat boy disguising himself as an artist. And so I just don't read his books. And, and he's, a, he's a gorgeous writer. He's, he's a really good stylist. But he's just always constantly 
trying to normalize sexual perversity. He's just always acting like, oh yeah, actually we're all thinking about it. So I'm just going to be the one to say it. And it's like, actually, we're not all thinking about it. Actually, I wasn't thinking about that. Or, Or insofar as I am just as perverse as you, it's good for me to be a little bit of a hypocrite. It's good for me to tell myself that I don't actually think like that. Even if you're accurate, I don't care. I can't live in that world for too long. I can't acknowledge that world for too long. It's like Ephesians 5, 3, but but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. There are places for just not naming things. And John Updike constantly violates that. So personally, for me, I would say John Updike does cross the line. (laughs) Some of that's precisely about how good he is. If he was a slightly less good stylist, if he was did a poorer job, I don't know that it would matter that much, actually, to me. But I think some people's mileage may vary, actually. It is true that people are different. People find different things to be erotically appealing. People find different things to be corrupting. And I'm not saying that all of life is subjective, but I am saying that people have different objective sensibilities that God has built into them. People are tender in different places. People are tempted in different places. People are weak or strong in different places. So it may be that the debauchery of somebody like Updike bounces off of the armor of a different kind of reader where it doesn't bounce off of me. Now, be very careful, of course, about thinking to yourself that you're the kind of person who has the armor that you know, something bad can just bounce off of. I thought that for years and years about movies with nudity and sexual depravity. I just thought, you know, I don't feel lust when I see a naked lady in a movie. This is what I thought as a teenager. I just, I don't have the uh, physiological signs of someone who finds this stuff really appealing. And I, I don't really think about it later. But what I learned to recognize is that just watching these demeaning displays of sexuality and the dehumanizing of these actresses and all this kind of stuff, it actually was corrupting. It actually was erotically corrupting. It actually was a very bad thing in my life. It just didn't manifest itself in super obvious ways immediately. But it did manifest itself. And it was bad. And it was, I was an idiot for thinking <laughs> arrogantly in my youthful arrogance that I was stronger than that. So you don't want to think that you're, oh, I'm, I'm just the one who's impervious. But on the other hand, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and act accordingly. Now, let me give my third principle, which is kind of the equal and opposite principle to there should be things that you don't read. <laughs> the principle is not, there should be things that you do read. Obviously, we know there should be things that you do read. But the principle is, the goal of the Christian life is not naivete. The goal of the Christian life is not naivete. The Bible is very clear about a whole host of sins, and it describes them, not in graphic detail, but the Bible makes no bones about how babies are born, (laughs) how people reproduce, the pleasure that they get from that reproduction, the kinds of sins and corruptions that can come with rape, with incest, with sodomy, with all these kinds of things. The Bible is clear about these things and it includes them in its stories. And so there has to be some place for talking about them in our literature. 
I do not believe that the Bible just, because it's the Bible, gets a free pass to do things that no other work of literature can do. I do think because it's the Bible, it was written and inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it does those things well, (laughs) and takes some, shall we say, if I can talk about it this way, some calculated risks that pay off because it's done in an infallible and perfect way that merely human writers need to be a little bit more careful about. You know, in other words, just because the Bible does it doesn't mean you can do it and get away with it. But it does probably mean somebody can do it and get away with it. Great literature, great short stories, great novels, great movies. They do tackle the human condition. They do talk about the way we are. They do talk about man's depravity. And we should, as we read these things, be learning about ourselves. It's one of the primary joys and primary helps and primary graces of a great book or a great story is that it teaches you something about human nature. And you can't do that without talking about human depravity. The Bible does call us to be innocent as doves. It does call us to real purity of thought, to real purity of heart. But that cannot mean a complete lack of knowledge of any kind of sin and what goes on behind the closed doors of certain kinds of sinners. Because the Bible is full of those things. And if you are a father or mother of children, or a father and mother of a church, or a father and mother of a company, or a father and mother of a country, or a city, whatever whatever kind of father or mother you are, and we are all fathers and mothers, you have to know something about the sin of your community, of your school, of your church, of your family, the sins that you yourself and that the people under you might be enticed by or might be destroyed by. You have to know something of the wolf in order to defend the sheep. And so I don't think there's any of us who gets to go through this life completely naive of sin and depravity. And so I still haven't let you off the hook of making your own mind up about whether you read John Updike. But do remember that Victorian prudery, sort of blushing maidenly posture when coming to literature or movies or life or anything is not godliness. It's just Victorian prudery. God doesn't call us to pretend like sex isn't a thing. God doesn't call us to pretend like depravity isn't a thing. We are not supposed to be worldly, but we do live in the world and we do have to act accordingly. We do have to be, yes, I'll go ahead and say it, wise as serpents. So there should definitely be some things that you don't read, but there definitely should be some things that you do read. If you're going to read literature at all, and I hope you're reading literature that grapples with human depravity, because otherwise, what's the point? Okay, so should I read a wicked story for my class? Rule number one, make up your own mind, sister. Rule number two, there should definitely be some stories you don't read. Rule number three, There should be some stories that you read. The goal of the Christian life is not to be innocent of all things related to sin or depravity. Rule number four, pray to God that he would give you discernment and sharpen the discernment that you do have through practice. Discernment is a spiritual gift that God gives in different measure to different people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.10 lists one of the gifts as, to some, the distinguishing of spirits. 
the discerning of spirits, a, uh, as John Calvin says, a clearness of perception in forming a judgment about something. People who can see through pretense, people who can get to the heart of the matter. This is actually something that God gives more of to some people and less of to other people. But it's something that we should all be striving for. Uh, James 1.5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, this is something that you should want, it is something that you should ask God for and believe that he will give you. <laughs> James 1 goes on to say, you must not ask without it, with any doubting. <laughs> you shouldn't doubt that you're going to get it, but you can't ask for it. And realize that it is a spiritual thing, actually. It's, it's not just a matter of logic or applied psychology or even applied scripture, although the, all those things, you know, especially applied scripture, are part of it. It's not just a matter of intuition. All those things have to work together, and they have to be guided by the Holy Spirit. They have to be guided by God, and they have to be guided by the wisdom that God pours out on us, something that is external to us and that is given to us by God. And so, pray for it and seek to have it. I think a lot of discernment for a lot of people actually does begin by trusting the whisper in their head. I think a lot of times our intellect takes a while to, to catch up with our intuition. And so your intuition is never a bad starting place. It might be a terrible ending place, but it's never a bad starting place when it comes to discernment. If you just think you don't like this story, or you think you shouldn't be reading this, or it makes you uncomfortable, or if a person makes you uncomfortable, or if a thing makes you uncomfortable, that's worth listening to. That's definitely worth listening to. And it doesn't mean that you always anchor your judgment there, but it does mean you just say, huh, there's a whisper in my head that says something's wrong here, so I need to gather some more data and figure it out. I need to take my intuition, apply logic to it, apply psychology to it, apply especially scripture and prayer to it, and see what I come up with. But what you don't want to do is say, eh, you know, my intuition's probably crap. I, I, I just, you, you don't want to completely ignore the whisper in your head. You want to confirm it. Uh, the other thing I'll say about this sharpening discernment is it is really a matter of practice. There's, there's so many Bible verses that say things like practice discernment. Hebrews 5, 13, uh, or, or 14, uh, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so, <laughs> you want to practice. Uh, that's why I said at the top, you want to make decisions. You want to be responsible and say, I think that's good. I think that's bad. Even where you're wrong, you're practicing. You're trying to be discerning. And I think if you're doing that with humility and with faith, that's something that God will honor. It doesn't mean you're going to be right every time, but it does mean that God will honor you, your humility, and allow you to grow gradually in wisdom. It's like if you're practicing anything else, you, you may not become the, the Michael Jordan of basketball just because you practice basketball. But if you shoot some hoops every day, you're going to become a little bit better at basketball. Even if you're shooting them wrong, you're going to learn to shoot them <laughs> with the wrong form in a way that's more effectively and makes, gets the ball into the basket, right? And the interesting thing about older people, people who have had decades of, of practice and discernment, 
people who are really godly, you know, older pastors, wise men, wise women, elders, they can oftentimes seem like they are relying completely on intuition, but actually they're just collating a lot of data really quickly. They're combining their intuition with their knowledge of scripture, with logic, with their knowledge of psychology. You know, they're putting all those things together and they're doing it a lot faster than a young person or a person who's young in the faith or young in the art of discernment can do. And so, and so it almost feels like they're just making a snap judgment. So oftentimes a young person will see that and think, huh, if I want to be wise, wise and awesome like them, I need to make snap judgments. It's like, no, you need to practice discernment. You need to go slowly and measure once, uh, or no, what is it? Measure twice, cut once, and be careful. You can learn to be a little bit faster by doing it slowly and with care for as long as you need to. So don't be rash. Don't be a show off. Just try and be wise. Try and really think about these things. Think about what's good, what's bad, what you think crosses the line, and see what you see. That is, I think, the other thing about discernment. And so this is just something that God gives to some people. Some of it is something that can be cultivated, and certainly it's something that we should all be praying for and striving for. Uh, discernment doesn't shut its eyes to what's obvious. And what you're going to find as you go through life is that a lot of the reason that you don't see the truth about a matter, that you're not able to know where to draw the line, is not because any idiot wouldn't be able to see it. Actually, any idiot would be able to see it. But you're even more of an idiot. I think I said that in the most convoluted way possible. <laughs> what I mean is, a lot of times things are actually quite clear, and our judgments are just quite cloudy. And so discernment isn't a matter of making sure that we have a super deep insight. It's a matter of just removing the fog, you know, getting the crust out of our eyes so that we can just see something the way it is, you know. With a John Updike story, it might be as simple as saying, oh, you know what? This is actually really filthy. This is really wicked. I just shouldn't read this, actually. Hemingway, a lot less sexually explicit, a lot more nutritional in terms of his stylistic and literary value, a lot more historically important. There's a lot of reasons why it's a cloudy issue as to whether I should read For Whom the Bell Tolls with all his stupid sex scenes. But a, a short John Updike story that's just about a sexual encounter that's nasty and gross and explicitly described. Uh, actually, I don't have to think too hard about that one. I'm not going to read that. I'd rather get an F than read that. <laughs> I think that, okay, I'm showing my cards. That is where I would probably land on Updike. I don't like the man. I think he is just dirty. But perplexed and Poughkeepsie really has to make that decision for herself. She really does. One final thought, you'll, you'll notice in all of this that I'm presupposing that she shouldn't just read it in deference to the class, in deference to the teacher. And I do presuppose that. I don't think anybody can ask you to sin. Now, I do think our attitude should be one of submission towards authority. I think you should want to obey your teacher. And I think by and large, you should obey your teacher. Your default setting should be to obey your teacher, even one that's not that great. They're the authority that God's putting over, over you. Putting, there's a verb. They're the authority that God has put over you. And that being said, they can't ask you to sin. So, if you collate all the data and you decide John Updike is just evil, I cannot read this, then you can still very respectfully, very submissively, very deferentially 
do it in a way that honors your teacher's authority. And that's going to vary from class to class and teacher to teacher. And I think it'll look a little different depending on whether you're a man or a woman and whether the teacher's a man or a woman and all kinds of factors. But I think there's a way to do it and you should do it. I also think you have to allow the weight of your teacher's authority, even again, even a bad teacher, to be part of what's on the scale. So as you're weighing everything and you're putting things on the side of the scale for why I shouldn't read this, you know, it's got a sex scene and then you're putting something over here. Well, it's got uh, quote unquote literary value and uh, actually the sex scene's not explicit and uh, all these different things. One thing, one bit of weight that should go on the scale and an important bit of weight is my teacher wants me to read this and I should obey my teacher. That should be an important consideration. It should be one that's not violated lightly. And so if you're trying to discern and you're on the fence about it, you could see some reasons maybe why you shouldn't read it, but also you think you should read it. I think it should be very important to you that your teacher wants you to read it. And if your teacher is just simply a wicked person that's always looking to corrupt you, then I don't know why you're paying for the class. And I'm sorry, I know a lot of people are stuck in that situation for any number of reasons, but it's just really true. Why would you pay for someone to corrupt you? Because I need a degree. Yeah, okay. I accept that. That is a good reason. And I don't mean to afflict the conscience of anyone who's just trying to get their education degree so they can teach, uh, you know, in high school or <laughs> get their engineering degree and they just want to get through the one stupid liberal arts class or or whatever it is. There, there are actually any number of reasons you do submit to bad authority in your life. That's just part of life. And so I'm not saying you need to burn the school down and make a big noble stand and <laughs> set yourself on fire just because you have a bad teacher, nor am I saying that you need to submit yourself in every way to authority that is asking you to sin. It's just a little bit more complicated than that. And, you know, so much of being an adult is being able to hold two things in your hands at once. I call it the... We said this at our college group that I lead uh, for Church of the King the other day. I, I like to call it the two-step tango. It's a dance that you do where you hold. Uh, sorry, it's not the two-step tango. It's the two-thought tango. So it's, it's a tango that you do. It's a dance where you have to hold two thoughts, one in each hand, and you're not allowed to drop either one. And that is a large part of being a discerning, faithful Christian is being able to hold two things at once and not muddle them in some stupid way and not just drop one or get rid of one. And so you actually do have to be able to hold, I must obey and respect my teacher. And my teacher wants me to do something wicked. You have to be able to hold both of them. And you have to be able to do something with both of them that honors both things. And that is just simply tricky. And there's no sugarcoating it. There's no simple answer. There's no easy answer. I think so often in life we think, there is no easy answer, therefore, ergo, there is no answer. And that's so stupid and reductive. Actually, oftentimes, when there's no easy answer, that's because there is a hard answer. And you just have to do the work. You just have to be responsible to do the work to find the hard answer. So you have to do that work. That's the work of being an adult. That's the work of being a mature Christian. You have to do the work. So do the work. <sighs> Hope that helps you, perplexed and Poughkeepsie. And I hope to be in it back next week with the very wise Jake and Brandon, who will have many more insights and be able to give so much more flavor to this podcast. But thanks for hanging with me, folks. If you have more thoughts about this, 
let me know. Hope I hope this was helpful. I don't think I'm going to do patron. There, we've got some new patrons we need to usher into the Hall of Champions, some new donor shoutouts. But I think I'm going to leave that for next week because I don't want to do it without Jake and Brandon. I, I want people to have the joy of being shouted out by the team, not by just me. So I think we'll just call this the end of the podcast. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>